This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation. The great majority of plants in a forest are actually connected underground. And so there's so much communication that's happening between them. And I think too frequently we think of plants as these lone beings. I don't know why we're not, but we think of plants as kind of existing on their own. And they're actually in these very physically connected, but also chemically connected networks. That's really determining how, how well they do in those environments. That's Baranda Montgomery, a biology professor at Michigan State University. She's just published a remarkable book called Lessons from Plants. Since our conversation, I've been looking at plants, especially those in my wife Arlene's vegetable garden, with a whole lot more awe and respect. But Baranda goes beyond amazing me with how connected and communicative plants are. She also draws lessons from plants that could improve our own human ability to connect and communicate. This is going to be so much fun because I love the work that you do. The thing that just strikes me so hard when I read about your work with plants is the idea that you've really tracked how plants communicate. We don't think of plants communicating much, those of us in the regular world. We don't. We don't. And I mean, there are some of us who try to communicate with our plants. My mom used to talk to her plants, but we don't often think about them talking back or talking to each other. Yeah, that's the thing, talking to each other. Yeah. I mean, for instance, the idea that if one of them is attacked, they can warn other plants nearby. Now, do they warn only plants like themselves, or do they warn do they warn other other species, other kinds of plants? Yeah, so they can warn other species. Certainly the messages are picked up by plants that are related to them because those plants speak the same language. So they Mm. recognize the same chemical language. So surely they're kin, but some other plants can recognize the language as well. So they warn them so they can defend themselves. First of all, what's the nature of the warning? It's It's a kind of a chemical that's released into the soil or what? Yeah, so it's a chemical um, family that's called volatile organic compounds. And some of those are the same compounds that we smell when we smell roses or other compounds. And so it's that chemical and it can be released into the air, but it can also flow through the the sap of the plant and go from the shoot to the root and through the ground. So they, they really communicate both in the air and through their roots underground. The other thing that interests me is there seems to be a lot of cooperation among plants. Yes. They can share remedies like antifungals and that kind of thing. Yes, yeah. And I've been particularly inspired by the the collaboration amongst plants as kind of instructive for how we can think about being better in communities. But yes, so they can share antifungals. Often they will do that through uh, what's known as mycorrhizae. So mycorrhizae are really a collaboration between fungi in the soil and the plant roots. And so often these fungi will wrap themselves around the roots or they'll become integrated in the roots. And two plants can share antifungal um, or antibacterial. So there are some fungi that they don't want, right, which is when you have an antifungal, but there are other fungi that are really friends and they collaborate with the plant and are able to serve as a kind of communication network between the roots of uh, attached plants. 
So in that kind of a symbiotic relationship, uh, each one is is deriving some benefit, right? What, yes. I see the benefit to the plant. What is the what does the, the fungus get out of this? Yeah, so exactly. In a symbiosis, there is some reciprocity. And so the plant is producing sugars through the process of photosynthesis. Those sugars get passed from the shoots to the root. And so the plants are offering sugars huh. as a resource to the fungi. And in return, what the fungus does is to increase the plant's ability to take up water and necessary nutrients like phosphate from the soil. So the, the fungi is giving increased water uptake and phosphate uptake to the plant, and in return, the plant offers sugars to the fungus. So it, it is, you know, a, re a reciprocity or a symbiotic uh, relationship indeed. How does it uh, enable the plant to take up water better? Yeah, so the fungus, um, fung you know, we're, we're used to the fruiting body of a fungus, looking at like a mushroom, but fungi are in the soil are often these networks of threads or, that are known as hyphae. So as they spread out through the soil, they increase their... Um, capacity to take up water. And so there's an increased volume of the soil that the fungus is in, in, in communication or in physical contact with. And so that increases the amount of water that the root can take up, as well as the access to things like phosphate that it then transfers to the plant as well. I see. So it sounds like you're saying just because of the fungus being there, just, there's just more water there. Yes, and the fungi also produce um, a hydroscopic compound that actually increases the like a sponge. It serves like a sponge to increase the water uptake. So it is both the physical presence of the fungus, but also the these compounds that are produced that serve as kind of like sponges and soak up any available water. So what what other kinds of information do they share that, that, that other than what we've been talking about? So they share sucrose. You can have sucrose pass through these mycorrhizae. So if there's an older plant that's making a, a surplus, it can share some with a younger plant that is not able to make as much through photosynthesis. A plant will feed another plant that's not getting enough food. What kind, is there some kind of begging transaction that goes on there first? or what, how, does yeah. it, how does one plant know the other one needs food and why does it give it? Yeah, so scientists are still trying to figure that out, but there is this phenomenon that's known as a nurse plant. Um, and so a, the older plant will serve as a nurse and presumably take care of a younger plant. And so partially it's probably just, you know, driven by the chemical properties that if plants have so much sucrose that they're not breaking down to use, it accumulates and will flow out into those networks. And other plants that are then at an energetic deficit can sense that there's sucrose available and take that up. You can label the sucrose by using a labeled carbon, and you can actually follow that and show that radioactive carbon is moving through those networks. And so it's clear that the sucrose is moving from one plant to another. That's really interesting. Yes. The, the, the idea that it's just more available yes. doesn't seem to be the whole explanation. I don't think so, but we still have so much to learn. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, I can't wait to, until you learn more. You, I'm, I'm smiling throughout this whole conversation because it's yes. so amazing. What about information about light? Why would one plant need to give that to another? So this is quite fascinating. This is actually part of what we study in my lab. We study in my lab the, the actual proteins that are involved in allowing plants to know when light is available. So plants are very good at knowing what light is available, whether there's bright light or dim light, but they're also able to detect different colors of the rainbow. So if there's a lot of red light, um, that means that you're in full sunlight, and if not, you're in a dim condition. And what we understand is that plants are able to communicate, particularly to other kin plants, through this looking at the light spectrum. 
And so there's something that's commonly known in forests that um, you have these canopy gaps. If you look at a forest from above, you can see that there are gaps between the trees. Uh-huh. And people used to think that that was just physical abrasion, where the trees wouldn't touch branches and that they would break off. But that's actually plants communicating what light is available and not growing too close to another plant that's related to them so that they don't compete for light. My mouth is hanging open. I'm stunned to hear this. Yes, yes. <laughs> this, this is amazing to me. Yes. The plant, they don't crowd each other out. Exactly. Because if we're related and either of us survives, that's good enough. And so you don't Mm -hmm. want to compete with your direct relatives. Right. Right. And in that kind of a forest, I understand that they're all connected very much underground as well. That's right. Yes. Yes. In fact, there's that wonderful phrase, the wood wide web. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of great work by uh, Susan Simard and other scientists who have really studied that wood wide web where it looks like the great majority of plants in a forest are actually connected underground. And so there's so much communication that's happening between them. And I think too frequently we think of plants as these lone beings. I don't know why we're not, but we think of plants as kind of existing (laughs) on their own. And they're actually in these very physically connected, but also chemically connected networks. That's really determining how, how well they do in those environments. It's just amazing to me. It's amazing. You know, I, I once tried to communicate with a plant about yes. 45 years ago. There was a book, I think it was called The Secret Life of Plants. Yes, yes. Where it was postulated that the plant, an ordinary house plant, would sense if you lit a match and held it near a leaf and would go Mm. into a state of panic of some kind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that you could discover it if you had an oscilloscope. Mm. So a neighbor of mine had an oscilloscope and I borrowed it Uh and I hooked the plant up to it. Mm -hmm. I must have lit a hundred matches next to this (laughs) plant and I never got anything on the oscilloscope. Maybe the the plant was already saying, I don't like this oscilloscope. (laughs) What are you doing to me here? Yes. Well, you know, that's interesting because there are so many over the years, there have been so many postulations about that. And, you know, plants do sense a lot. And I would imagine that depending on which plant it was, there probably were some studies that a plant next to a match had a response because a match is a temperature and plants can definitely respond to temperature. We know that. And maybe the plant you had just was insensitive. (laughs) I had to get an insensitive plant. I need to find a plant with empathy. Yes. <laughs> it sounds like some plants have empathy, it's a, a version of it, sensing what, what I mean, it, it, it's probably too chemical to call it empathy the way we experience empathy. Mm-hmm. But this idea that they sense their surroundings, they, they are aware of the well-being of plants near them and help them out, like the extreme mm-hmm. example of the nurse plant. Yes. But can yeah. you... Can you say that it's something like empathy, or is that a lesson we can learn and apply it to ourselves? You know, it's certainly a lesson we can learn, but I think that you can say that there is a version of empathy. I think too frequently we limit ourselves um, in terms of thinking about whether plants have empathy or whether plants are intelligent. We limit ourselves to the definitions that we have based on how we understand human intelligence or human empathy. And I think if we open our idea of what empathy means is to be aware that there is another being next to you and responding based upon what its needs are in addition to what your needs are, then that's a form of empathy. And so I think it's about how we define it. But I certainly think it's a lesson for us, but I think that there's something in there that's fascinating in and 
of itself in the way that plants are not these lone beings that are only worried about themselves, but they are in community and responding to other organisms that are in the same space. The notion of community is and and the community nourishing the parts of the community that are combined mm-hmm. is really present in what you call the three sisters yes. when you plant corn and beans and squash together. Yes. Describe that for me, what happens when you do that. Yeah, that is, that's one of the most fascinating phenomenon that I've been aware of. And it's interesting because I became aware of it early um, in some studies in you know, preschool and when they were talking about um, Thanksgiving. But then it came back to me um, a few years ago when I was able to hear Robin Wall Kimmerer, um, who is an indigenous uh, scholar and plant ecologist, talk about this Native American or indigenous farming practice where they do plant these three plants together in what is known as polyculture. And so that's when you culture plants of different species together, as opposed to the way we generally do farming in the U.S., where we have a field of just corn or a field of soybeans because of the ease of harvesting. But what's beautiful about the Three Sisters is that it really brings to bear um, this importance of reciprocity and the fact that for many polyculture, like the Three Sisters, corn, bean, and squash, They grow better together because they give something to each other and receive something that allows them all to grow better together than they would in isolation. And so in the three sisters, corn is the first sister. And so when it's planted such that it germinates and grows first, it serves as a tall um, scaffold upon which the second sister bean can grow. And so in the absence of corn, bean would grow along the soil and it would be susceptible to to any kind of bacteria or other kinds of um, problems that it would encounter on the soil. So by growing on the physical support of the corn, it's protected. It has greater access to sunlight, and so it benefits from the corn serving as its scaffold. And in return, what the bean does is that beans are a legume that are nitrogen-fixing plants, and so they're able to fix atmospheric nitrogen into a form that serves as fertilizer. And so that fertilizer, part of that goes to the corn um, in reciprocity for providing the scaffold to grow. And then the third sister is squash, which grows low and close to the ground. And by covering the ground, it prevents other weeds from growing there. And it also keeps the soil moist so that the roots are protected. And so in in, return for it providing this protection from weeds, um, the squash grows better in a lower light environment. So the higher up plants provide a kind of shaded environment for it. And it also gets some of the nitrogen. So in these three sisters, each of them is giving something to one of the other sisters and getting something in return. And together they grow better than they would if they were growing in isolation. And although we don't always need scientific proof, for years indigenous farmers have grown those three together, but there has been some biochemical and other proof from biologists that indeed those plants thrive better, are healthier, and are able to ward off danger better when they grow together than when they are apart. And I think that there are beautiful scientific lessons there, but there are also beautiful lessons there about the importance of diversity and how when we are in diverse communities, each of us has something to offer that together um, results in a richer uh, uh, community that thrives to greater degree than if we are in isolation. When we come back from our break, Baranda Montgomery tells me how a kindergarten experience with beans has shaped both her scientific career and her role in the leadership of her university. 
This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. And also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters and interacts with science and uses science in their daily lives. This is Science Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Baranda Montgomery. You know, a lot of people use the term that someone has a green thumb. Is there such a thing? What, what, what do you make of that term? I do believe in it, partially because of how I grew up with my mom. So my mom has had beautiful plants in the house and outside of the house. And she had friends who were not able to take care of their plants. And a plant would show up on the porch with a note that said, Dear Mrs. Montgomery, please nurse this plant back to health. And when it's healthy, again, call me and tell me what you did. And then I will try to do that. And my mom would say, yeah, they don't have a good green thumb. And so it became really clear to me that people who were able to take care of their plants were able to read their plant cues and respond to it. So my mom would turn a plant. She would say, this plant is bending away from the window. We need to rotate it. Or this one needs to be repotted. So I really think a green thumb is about um, someone having the ability to sense what's going on with the plant um, and to try to respond to what they think is its need to keep it growing. You began learning lessons from plants pretty early in your life. Did, yes. I, you started in kindergarten, didn't you? Yes. I, yes literally yes. literally learning a lesson from the plant. How, yes. how did that begin? So it was a beautiful. Um, our kind, my kindergarten teacher um, did a science module where she sent us each home with three to five beans. And she told us that we should put those beans in a cup with either some wet cotton balls or a little bit wet, wet soil and put it on a windowsill and watch it over days and note what we saw. And the first few days, it was not at all exciting. It just looked like a wet pinto bean. But then a few days in, a crack appeared. And at first, I thought there was a problem. And my mother said, no, this is what happens. And so slowly, a root emerged, a little white root emerged. And a few days later, at the other end, some small green leaves emerged. And over time, the plant, you know, it grew and matured and started to make more leaves. And after um, some time, we all had to bring those back to the classroom. And I was expecting that all of our plants would look the same. But when we got to the classroom, some of us had short, stocky plants that were vibrant green. Some people had tall plants that were falling over that were more yellow green. And so we were really confused and asked the teacher, well, what happened here? And she asked us, well, did you use cotton balls or did you use soil? And so some of us that had plants that had the yellow green leaves had used cotton balls instead of soil. And so she explained that soil has nutrients that cotton balls don't have. The cotton would only provide water. Um, and then she also asked, well, were your, were your windowsills sunny or were they shaded? And so for people who had sunny windowsills, they had the short stocky plants and the ones that were more uh, flimsy and tall had you shaded. And so she was really able to take us through how having a different environment 
and different resources available to this one being could result in very different outcomes. And so it was a really great lesson, an early lesson um, on how environment matters so much for how plants grow. And I remember asking, I ran home that day and said to my mom, are the beans that we have for dinner growing plants in my stomach? And she said, no, that's not what happens. That's a very different <laughs> response. So I did very early in kindergarten get introduced to plants. And it was many years later before I came back to have a real interest in studying them. But I really remember how impressive it was to see that bean grow into an entire being. The conclusion that you drew from it it sounds like one that came to you later in your life when you were yes. more aware of the social setup that we all have to live in at the moment. Yes. I think the lesson that you drew from it had something to do with the fact that you, you, we don't blame the plant That's for, for not making it. It's the importance of the environment. Mm-hmm. Yes, that really came to me so much more even when I started as a professor and was responsible for mentoring students. And I realized that too frequently, myself and my colleagues and others, if students were performing well, we would decide that they were excellent, smart students. And if the students were struggling too frequently, it's the human response to ask, what's wrong with this student? Why don't they fit in this environment? And really, the more I thought about what we know about plants, I decided that we really understand as plant biologists how important the environment is. If you have two identical seeds, One of them can thrive if it's given access to light and the other will die if it has no access to light. And that's nothing about the aptitude of the seed. It's about the environment that it finds itself in. And also I found over the years that probably 90% of humans, if they have a plant in their environment, they expect that the plant should grow. And if the plant is struggling in any way, we start to ask questions about the environment, whether our water is pure enough or if we need bottled water, if it needs some miracle grow, whether it's in the right place in our house. And so generally, humans expect that plants should grow. And when they are suffering, we ask questions about the environment or we'll ask if we have the ability to take care of that plant. We very infrequently look at a plant and say it's incapable of growing. We try to mediate the environment. And so all of those things combined really said to me that we as humans have the capacity, if we so choose, to also expect that humans in our environment could grow. And I just thought about how transformative it would be if when another human was in our environment, our expectation was that they could survive and thrive and have success. And if they weren't doing so, if we ask questions about the environment, as opposed to defaulting to biases or other deficit models that presumes there's something wrong with them that they're not thriving. Yeah, that, that's a powerful lesson. And what, what other lessons do you think you can find in some of the things we've been talking about, the, the, the ability to communicate, the ability to cooperate I think one of the ones that's been really powerful for me is uh, what I think about as the abilities plants have to ask for help um, when they're in distress. And too frequently as humans, we will suffer in distress without asking for help. And I think of the ability when plants are attacked by an insect and they produce a chemical that helps their neighbor that they're offering help to their neighbor to prepare. But there's also this fascinating tripartite interaction that happens in neighbor uh, nature where some plants that are being attacked by mites, little insects, mm-hmm. they can't protect themselves against that, but the plants can produce a chemical that attracts a wasp which eats the mites. Mm-hmm. And so producing this chemical is saying, I need help. 
And that attracts this parasitic wasp that comes in and has a picnic on the mites. And so the plants are protected. And that's just a fascinating biological phenomenon, I think. But also for me, it's a powerful lesson about the importance of asking for help when you need it. And I think as humans, we have so much to learn about having the vulnerability and the humility to ask for help when we're in a situation that we can't handle. But if we could speak out the language, there may be someone who could come in and take care of that situation. How do you use these lessons? You really make me wonder as you said, because these are powerful lessons. Do you use them when you relate to your, your students? Do you encourage other people to think of these things and hold up the plant as a metaphor for how it actually can be done? Yes. I've been known to use them almost anywhere, sometimes out of desperation, sometimes out of the fact that I've realized over the years some conversations that we need to have. So I I also am a a leader at my university, and I use them a lot in leadership contexts because some of the conversations we need to have about sexism or racism or other forms of uh, discrimination are difficult conversations to have if we start having them as individuals. Because often if, if I as a black woman have a conversation with a white colleague and we're talking about race, there's a fear that I'm about to assume that they're racist. Or if I'm having a conversation with someone who is of a different sexual orientation or gender representation, I might be afraid that I'm going to be called sexist. And so often having a conversation that starts with what we understand in nature about plants seems charming to tell plant stories. And it can be far into the conversation where if we're talking about the expectation that plants can grow, that I say to the colleague, you're suffering from your plant caretaking abilities. (laughs) And so it's been really powerful in that context. But I also, one of the favorite ways that I've used them is that there is a four-year-old learning community that I've been invited in um, sometimes in spring when flowers are coming out or in the fall when fall, the tr- you know the trees are turning colors to explain to them about those phenomena. But often at the end of it, I will talk about some of the things that we've talked about and the four-year-olds have said, oh, the plants are sharing. That's a lesson in sharing. And so I've really been able to use it in so many different contexts. So that's really what led me to think about writing about it more broadly because I have been able to really use it in a whole range of contexts from talking to kids, which are a tough audience, um, to talking to <laughs> leaders, which are a different kind of tough audience. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yes. I can imagine. That's so interesting. Do the kids uh, come up with that correlation on their own, that the the plants are yeah. sharing the way we can share too? Yeah, often they do because the first time, you know, that I shared a story, I didn't leave them with the lesson. And one of the young ladies came up at the end and said she wanted to thank me for helping her think about sharing because she was struggling with sharing. And so it was a lesson she pulled on, you know, out wow, for herself. And then so I used that. Yes. Yes, I thought that was super sweet. The sweetest part was she came up at the end and said she didn't have anything she could pay me with, but she gave me a little box of animal crackers. And I told her I know how important animal crackers are to four-year-olds, so that was the best payment I had received. (laughs) That's great. She right away started with the sharing. What other things have we been talking about that uh, you can draw lessons from? Yeah, so one of the other ones that I think has had a lot of power, and we we talk a lot in the U.S. now about a need for culture change, mm-hmm. but when you talk about how do you go about culture change, we don't often know where to start. And I have drawn really powerful lessons from thinking about what's known as ecological 
ecological succession. And so this is what would happen after, for example, or um, if there was a volcano uh, eruption, you end up with a destroyed environment and plants re recover in that environment. Or many of us, our most common example of ecological succession is watching an abandoned parking lot. It, over time, you'll start to see small weeds growing in the parking lot. And then over time, larger plants with flower. And soon you can see bushes and trees. And what's interesting is that those first plants that grow in such environments are called pioneer plants. And these are plants that are able to grow in the minutest crack of a soil, in the crack of a sidewalk. They don't require a lot of resources, but what they do through the process of growing is transform the environment. So they widen the cracks and can open access to soil below. Um, in their death, they become organic compound that over time builds up soil. And so after you have enough pioneer plants grow, then there's a second wave of plants that can come in. Uh, and those secondary plants require a few more resources. They're not as what I call scrappy. You know, they don't, they, mm -hmm. they, some of them are more like uh, plants that have greater requirements. And over time, you get to the plants that are the ones that I consider having a silver spoon. They need the environment to be nearly perfect to mm. grow. But what I've learned from that is that when we think about cultural change, too frequently we bring in the same kind of leader no matter where we are in our pathway for cultural change. And if we're at the beginning of cultural change, we need to get leaders who are like these pioneer plants. They don't require a lot of resources, but they have the ability to transform the environment in ways that allows future change to come in. And so I think that, you know, in thinking about things that are as tough as cultural change, plants and other organisms show us pathways to, towards cultural change that I hope make it an easier path for other for us to think about doing that kind of work in very difficult circumstances. That's an interesting lesson to draw from that kind of a plant. Could, yes. could I'm trying to picture what how that would play out in real life. What, 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 what would be the equivalent of a pioneer plant in human terms? So I think about, um, right now, I think about uh, some of the leaders who are able to lead institutions in the middle of a pandemic where we're all going through significant financial crises. You have to be able to make decisions where you have limited resources and a very harsh environment, but still to have some intended outcome. And the leader that a, a company or an institution might hire in the middle of pandemic might not be the leader you would hire in the middle of, you know, when times are great and there's lots of money because they themselves, their motivations are different. And so I think about those kinds of instances. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about was what it's been like for you, because you've been often the first black woman scientist in your in your environment, or sometimes the only one. What? How do you deal with that? Has that had an effect on your career? Have you had to carry on two careers at once, once the regular career and the other making it work in that environment? Yes, absolutely. I often tease people that I happen to be tenured in biochemistry, but I probably could have been in a department of leadership or, or anything else. <laughs> I think that, you know, when you are the first and only, there is sometimes extra work that has to be done. Um, most of us are in science because we want to ask interesting questions and, you know, get those, get the results. And I have had to spend a lot of energy figuring out how to navigate the space, navigate the space before I can get to the experiments. 
And it can be exhausting. And I know that some people have not persisted in the sciences because it is exhausting. I've been fortunate in that I decided early that I was really just going to attack it as a research question myself. That's how I started writing about mentoring and other kinds of things, because I was trying to figure out what I needed to have personal success. And I felt that it was an opportunity for me to hopefully put that information out there so that the ones who came behind me wouldn't have to work as hard. Um, because it can, you as you say, it can feel sometimes like doing two or three jobs. Part of it, preparing my colleagues to work with me. Part of it, preparing myself to understand the environment before I ever get to the experimentation. I know you mentioned the situation earlier where sometimes you're the one wondering if you're going to be misunderstood. Yes. And sometimes you're wondering what the other person must be thinking to be talking yes. like that. What, how, yes. far, how far down the road are they going with bias or stereotypes? Except, yes, yes. And, and there's this kind of uh, uncomfortable meet at a cocktail party where you, you, you suddenly don't want to be there. <laughs> yes. Or you want yes. to be there in a lot better communicative fashion. Yeah, I think the greatest gift I gave myself early on in my career was to assume that people have good intentions, um, even when they go awry. And to give them a gift of trying to assume good intentions and not giving up on people, I think that's one of the hard parts about, you know, being um, underrepresented in a space is that frequently you spend a lot of time trying to help other people become comfortable with you. And ev not everybody has good intentions, but if you attack everyone as if they have bad intentions, you can't persist in that space and maintain your sense of self. So I've decided, you know, a long time ago to assume good intentions, to assume that I still have a lot to learn as well, but to assume that the other person is open mm -hmm. um, to the interaction and open to learn and grow together. And sometimes you get disappointed, but much more frequently I've been uh, rewarded with a true interest in people understanding and engaging. We were talking about plants getting help from other plants. Mm -hmm. Do you find that your study of plants doing that, for instance, has made it comfortable for you to accept allies in the in, yes. the in the work you do of bringing the two uh, two races together Yes. And I think that it's critical that you have allies. I, you know, it's one of the things that I say to younger scholars who are thinking about coming into this space that we can't assume that it has to be other people who look like us who are going to help make the change. You have to be open to allies. You have to seek out allies. Um, and so, yeah, I have learned a lot about plants that trying to go it alone is not the way to go. There's greater success for all of us when we understand that we each have some contributions to make and we each need someone else to contribute to us. This has been such an interesting conversation. We, uh, we have to start wrapping it up, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But before we do, we, um, we end every conversation with seven quick questions. Okay. Are you game? I'm they're, game, they're, yes. They're gen generally <laughs> about science. Here's the first question. We talked about your experience in kindergarten when you got turned on to plants. Mm -hmm. Can you think of anything even earlier than that that made you curious what was the first thing you can remember that made you curious? Well, the first one I remember vividly um, is a year or two before kindergarten. I almost set the house on fire <laughs> oh. um, because I was curious about 
how fast paper burned. And I had collected <laughs> toilet tissue, paper towel, regular paper, and construction paper. And I recruited my older sister to be my research assistant to look out for mom. And then we started them all at the same time with a match. And it got out of hand. And I looked up and my, my research assistant had quit her job. And so I remember that because mom had a strong talk with me about curiosity at that point. <laughs> that's, that's great. <laughs> okay. What, 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 you started early, but when did you know you wanted to be a scientist and what made you want to be one? So when I really decided I wanted to be a scientist was towards the end of undergraduate. So I was majoring in biology as an undergraduate, but I had decided at five or six years old that I was going to be a lawyer. And once it became clear I was good at science and math, I decided I would be a biological patent lawyer. And during the last part of undergraduate, I did some experimentation, primarily to know what experiments I'd be writing patents about, and fell in love with the idea of hands-on experimentation. Mm -hmm. And that's when I really switched and decided I wanted a career in life as a biologist. So as a scientist, what was the best moment you've ever had? Oh, as a so one of the best moments I've ever had is I have a son, and I ended up having to bring him to a talk um, uh, a panel talk I was giving one day because the the uh, babysitter fell through. And when they opened the mic for questions, he was the first one at the microphone with the question. And he actually had a really good question. And so that was a really great experience because I thought I felt bad having to drag him to the talk instead of having a babysitter. And he just really fell into it. And so that was a great moment I remember. I think he's, he's getting ready for a career like yours. It sounds great. <laughs> yes. What was your worst moment? Um, I think one of the worst moments I've had as a scientist is the first time I was mentoring someone and it was pretty clear that our mentoring relationship wasn't going to work out. And I felt that I was failing them. And it took me a while to realize that sometimes our role as a mentor is to get people farther along the path, not necessary to the finish line. Mm -hmm. And so, but when that, when I got to that point where it wasn't working out, I was really devastated, particularly as I study mentoring, but it's been a growth experience over time. What gives you confidence? You know, I think what gives me confidence um, is thinking back about the strong family stories that I have. So my parents grew up in the segregated South in Arkansas, and they grew up at a time where, you know, there were so many divides uh, from the races, between the races. And my mom might have been a professor, except she grew up in a time where she was pulled out of school to help pick cotton um, mm. in cotton season. Wow. And so thinking about all the sacrifices that my ancestors have made gives me confidence because I'm here because of the sacrifices that they made. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Last question. Mm -hmm. How do you think we can help more people enjoy a love of science? I think one of the things that we really have to do, and that's what I try to do so desperately, is for those of us who have a love for science to invite people into our enthusiasm, enthusiasm, not our facts. And so I, not, I try not to lose people in the facts of plants, but to really invite them into the enthusiasm that I have. And I think we could do a lot more of trying to align people around the enthusiasm and let them get the facts later. Well, I was enthusiastic before we started, and I'm more enthusiastic now. Thank you so much for a wonderful talk. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for all that you do in this space. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. 
My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Paranda Montgomery is a professor of biology at Michigan State University. In 2020, she was one of the co-founders and co-organizers of the first Black Botanists Week. Her book, Lessons from Plants, was published in April by Harvard University Press. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. On the next Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Maya Fishback, who's working on new ways to explore the universe. The team she's part of uses giant detectors called LIGO to look for ripples in space-time called gravitational waves, like those caused by the collision of two giant black holes. So I've been working on LIGO since I started my PhD in 2015, which was a very lucky time to be entering this field because I started my PhD the very same month that the first gravitational wave event was detected by LIGO. Even though I didn't know until the public announcement in 2016 that LIGO had actually detected gravitational waves, I think I could definitely sense the excitement whenever I talked to people who did gravitational waves that like, it was a very fortunate time. I've kind of grown as a scientist at the same time that the entire field is growing. Maya Fishback, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Science Clear and Vivid, and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter, at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.